Barbara Schulte grew up on a place in Illinois that brought horses up from Texas to sell. A lot of horses. And all the kids were involved. Our operation, however, was so unique in that we had everything from a really high performance, you know, higher price point, mm-hmm. cutting horse, reining horse, pleasure horse, to horses that were unregistered. And we had 30 geldings unregistered in a pasture, yearling studs and, and yearling fillies and, mm-hmm. you know, all kinds of show horses and a barn that had 100 stalls and a indoor arena and then another whole area cutting horse alley which was my dad's passion he just absolutely loved the cutting horses there were five kids and we really had no choice growing up we had a string of horses every night when we came home from school that's what we did is we improved the horses and that's why he fought so hard (laughs) <laughs> to teach his children, and that was what our job was, was to take our string of horses and improve it, show the horse, and the regional shows were like the Illinois State Fair, the Indiana State Fair, Congress in Ohio, and take the horse to the show and not come home with it. I mean, that was the goal, was to sell the horse. Welcome to the Will Podcast about horses and horsemanship. I'm Renee Hare. And I'm John Hare. Each week on the show, it's our turn to talk about horses. Before we do, we wanted to let you know about our new Patreon page. Patreon is a way you can support the Woe Podcast. We are working with the same equipment we started with in 2012. The Woe Podcast is in its fifth year with over 150 episodes and nearly 100 videos. People have offered to help. Here's how. It's easy. Go to patreon.com forward slash John Hare and check it out. We hope to add a few more rewards. We have a t-shirt and a decal in design. But we think they're going to look super sharp and also prove you support the show. And we want every contributor to supply us with a photo of you and your horse so we can post it on the Woe Podcast support page. There's a link to Patreon at woepodcast.com. You can help us produce even better content. Now, let's get to this week's show. You may remember last fall I had the opportunity to interview the Mustang man, Bobby Kerr, as he was passing through town doing a show at the Tehachapi Mountain Rodeo. Bobby told the story of running away from his home in Canada to go to a horse operation in Illinois run by Cletus Hollings. Bobby returned home and then later got permission to go work for Mr. Hollings. Bobby said it was a very important part of his life. In researching that story, I learned that Mr. Hollings had five kids and that one of them was the cutting champion Barbara Schulte. Barbara grew up in her father's operation and went on to capture the 1988 NCHA Derby, the 1992 NCHA Superstakes Classic, and the 1992 Augusta Futurity. She is an author, clinician, equine consultant, And as a personal performance coach, she credits much of her success in the competitive arena to the Mentally Tough program developed by Dr. Lear. We had to hear more about her life growing up on the Hollings Ranch and learn more about how to improve our mental toughness in the show ring. Here's Barbara Schulte on the Woe Podcast. She's a cutter, personal performance coach, clinician, author, and a member of the Cowgirl Hall of Fame. 
please welcome Barbara Schulte from Benham, Texas to the Woe Podcast. Good morning, Barbara. How are you? Hi, John. I'm great. Thank you. I'm just really happy to be here. Very honored for you to interview me. Thank you. Well, we're really happy to have you on the on the Woe Podcast. We met several years ago at the uh, when Equine Affair was was in Pomona, and you were doing mm-hmm. a a cutting clinic there. And I watched your, your presentation with fascination as you were describing each cow. You picked out those cows and uh, knew the personality of each one and knew which one that you were going to to pick out. Yeah. Well, you're making me laugh. That's why I'm a cow girl. Anyway, <laughs> I would... <laughs> that's a, you know, that's a bit of what we do in cutting. We have to describe the cattle and them. One of the other things that I found fascinating about you, I interviewed Bobby Kerr. He was a competitor in the Mustang Millionaire, and he had talked about moving from Canada to Illinois and to work for a horse, I'm not sure if it's a horse trader is the right term, but Cletus Hollings. Mm-hmm. And so whenever yeah. anybody mentions a name, I went on and I googled Cletus and was pleasantly surprised to see he was your father. Yes, Bobby worked for dad and worked for our family. I think that I was probably in high school or or college then because it was a little bit after I was, you know, at home all the time. But absolutely, I knew him and have uh, reconnected with him since. And boy, what a talent he is. Yes, he is. And he described that operation that your dad was running where there were, you know, five, six, seven hundred horses that were at your place and he would ride them. And I bet you, you gained a lot of horse knowledge growing up in an environment like that. Yes. You know, it's so amazing to me, you know, now, which is obviously it's such an interesting perspective for all of us to look back on our childhood and, and what went on when we grew up. Dad and mom, you know, mainly because of dad's vision, we had this, this family operation of anywhere from 350 to, to 500 horses. Dad would shop for horses in Texas and bring them back on semi-loads of, of horses, like from the Force Dixes and the King Ranch and, and places in Texas. And people would line up when the horses were unloaded. And the cowboys who worked for Dad would, like Bobby, would ride those horses and, you know, some of those horses would get sold right there on the spot and be taken home wow. because they were ranch horses from Texas. And our operation, however, was so unique in that we had everything from you know, a really high performance, you know, higher price point, mm-hmm. cutting horse, reining horse, pleasure horse, to uh, horses that were unregistered. And we had pastures, like maybe, you know, 30 geldings uh, unregistered in a pasture, yearling studs and, and yearling fillies and, mm-hmm. you know, all kinds of show horses and a barn that had 100 stalls and an indoor arena and then another whole area, Cutting Horse Alley, which was my dad's passion. He just absolutely loved the cutting horses. And there were five kids and we really had no choice growing up. We had a string of horses every night. When we came home from school, that's what we did is we improved the horses and for sale, that was the business. 
we did that all summer as well, which show, you know, all around the Midwest. And one thing is that when you bought a horse from Cletus Hulling, you knew that you could bring it back mm-hmm. later if you didn't get along. I mean, that, where can you do that? Yes. Now, of course, the horse is probably not worth quite as much because maybe you've taken some of the showiness off of it or, or whatever or the, you know, the sharpness off. But you could trade it back in. It was just such a unique operation. And people from all over Canada and the United States used to come and buy horses from my dad. And some of the most famous cutters in the world came through our family. Wow. So it was quite a growing up. Do you have any favorite stories from that time? That Yeah. Because of my dad's love of cutting, a lot of the famous, at the time, um, haulers for the top 10 in the country would come by and so like uh, Jimmy Bush and J.K. Fisher and you know depending upon someone's knowledge of cutting history that those names may or may not ring a bell Mm -hmm. but we would go to shows and we would take a bobtail truck of horses and you know my older sister Tootie and myself we would show the horses this was before the quote-unquote the little kids were old enough to show horses and one time we went to the show and the first thing I remember is um, walking back from showing the cutting horse and, and crying because I didn't do well and talking to the horse saying, you just, you know, went way out, ran my leg back. You know, why do you do that to me? And anyway, I just remember that so vividly, just talking to this horse. And then the pleasure horse I showed, you know, we did well and we got home and unloaded and realized that she wasn't there. And we left her tied to this chain link. (laughs) So, of course, my dad wasn't very happy. We had to go back and get the horse, and luckily she was there. And so there were just always just just amazing adventures of of things that happened and the characters that came through dad's place. It must have given you a really good eye for picking out horses. I'm sure you're, you're... Your dad had certain characteristics that he looked for in a horse. Can you give us any examples of what he was looking for when he was looking at a horse? Yeah, so that's a, such an interesting question because dad was so aware of, I mean, he could just look at a horse and he could tell if they were sound, of course, on that particular day. He could ride them, he could get them spinning and and he knew price points and, you know, he wanted to move horses quickly. So he knew what the customers that he had and what he always talked about in buying and selling horses was that a horse's head and a horse's eye were so important to the marketability of a horse. Mm-hmm. You know, that was one of the things that people would really, would really latch onto. And of course, the prettier the horse, the more eye appeal that they had for a prospective client that I can just remember him talking so much about, he would call it a baby doll head. And this is like, sounds like such a chauvinistic, not very politically <laughs> correct these days, but he'd talk about, you know, the hip on a mare, like a hip, like a washerwoman, like, I don't know what that means. But anyway, he would just talk about big butted, strong and really gorgeous heads. And the more feminine, the better. 
Could he get an idea for how a horse might stop or turn around by just looking at the way it was put together? Oh, yes, I'm sure. I don't remember him talking about that specifically, but because he loved reining and he just was passionate about cutting, he knew athletes. He could take horses that had some training or a lot of training and work them and improve them and then sell them for a lot more money. And because he was such a good hand with a horse, you know, the, the, the training was solid. Right. And that's why he fought so hard <laughs> to teach his children. And that was what our job was, was to take our string of horses and improve it, show the horse on, you know, like the, the weekends and the regional shows were like the Illinois State Fair, the Indiana State Fair, the Congress in Ohio, and take the horse to the show and not come home with it. I mean, that was the goal, was to sell the horse. So you'd be working, how big were your strengths? I would say during the school year, we probably had anywhere from three to five horses to ride when we came home from school. And of course, that was before we did homework. And so we would just get off the bus or, you know, mom would pick us up and we'd come home and change our clothes and go right out to the barn. And then in the summers, we would have anywhere from six to 10 horses, just kind of depending. And we would pick, have the cutting horses and the reining horses and the pleasure horses. Those are the horses that we would show at, on the weekends. But I just remember really being focused more on cutting and also those are the horses that I enjoyed the most. Although in right. youth activity, you know, as a HUHA youth activity person, I showed in showmanship and pleasure and all those classes. That was just a few years ago. <laughs> <laughs> just the youth a few. activity classes. <laughs> right. And you're working on cutting, and I'm just trying to get a picture of, uh, would you just be out there with your brother and sisters kind of turning back cows for each other and and figuring out things on your yeah. own or was your dad out there helping you work through the maneuvers well actually dad he loved to work the cutting horses you know he would ride for probably a couple of hours a day I would say and what we would do as kids is we would go and get all the horses saddled, you know, the horses he was going to work, mm -hmm. the turnback horses, get the cattle up, get it all set up, get the horses loped. And then he would work them. And then we would either be turning back or, or we would be getting a horse warmed up for him. That's what we would be doing. We would be turning back, saddling, unsaddling, warming up, depending on what dad needed. But he loved to do that. I would say that he worked the horses. I mean, he was the the trainer of the horses that we owned, and we just would work a horse enough to be a little bit comfortable to take it to the show. Right. And then you went off to a, a career, a very good career, working with uh, at the School of the Deaf, and then you came back into competition. Mm -hmm. I think when you when you got married, when you married Tom. Yes. Yes. So what happened is that. Well, first of all, to just digress a moment, sure. I've always been really eclectic person in my interests. Uh -huh. You know, I just love many things, and I will never, ever, ever be a person who 
to this board. In fact, I just tend to get my fingers in too many pies and looking back at my life now, I just, it must just be my personality, but you know, through high school and undergraduate school and college, which I went to, to Bradley University in Illinois, because of the way our family was structured and because of the expectations, it really wasn't a choice of if we were interested in the horses or not. I mean, I loved the horses and I also was interested in, you know, things in high school or, or whatever. Mm-hmm. So when I went to college, I started to just kind of think, well, maybe, you know, I would like to have a career in something else. I ended up going to, to graduate school and then I met my husband and I had, I don't know if drifted away, but I had, I was so interested in this other part of my career and just kind of exploring life in a little different way. And and my husband was just so intrigued by it all because of our family and because of my sister and her husband. And, you know, they were training cutting horses and showing. And he goes, well, do you know how to do this? And I go, yeah, I know how to do this. One thing led to another, and it's really because of my husband that I got back into it. You know, I think that happens to a lot of young people. You spent a good part of your adolescence with horses. And I don't know if burned out would be a good term, but you'd want to, you may have wanted to to experiment with some other things. And Mm -hmm. it's a good thing he brought you back. Because you were, you had been competing for a considerable time as a youngster. And then when you got back into it, you discovered mental toughness, which was a philosophy mm-hmm. for honing your competitive skills through mental mm-hmm. toughness and, mm-hmm. and exercises. And that's when mm-hmm. it seemed like your competition really got fired up. Yes. As part of my interest as an undergraduate, in graduate, I always I always loved psychology and also communications. My I got my master's degree in speech pathology and audiology, and actually worked with the hearing impaired and worked with stroke patients. And I, I was just curious about those kinds of communication as well as kind of the the psychology side. And I think what was happening is that I was forming, I was becoming aware that what I really loved is to understand how we can reach our maximum level of potential in, mm-hmm. in whatever we want to do. You know, how, how do you unlock that? And so I was competing in cutting horses and my older sister realized that I loved that aspect and she heard an interview kind of like we're doing now mm-hmm. late night driving like all night from one competition to, to the other one of those overnight talk show things right. yeah <laughs> yeah with um Dr. Jim Lair of the then Human Performance Institute in Orlando Florida uh-huh. uh, where they train professional athletes and Olympic athletes how to perform under pressure I didn't hear the interview, but I purchased his book and just fell in love with it and could tell that this was really powerful information. So then I signed up to go to a seminar in Florida. And when I did, I, the timing was just right. And they were 
thinking about certifying instructors in other sports, like, you know, like a football person or a Mm -hmm. basketball. And they said, well, we're going to try our idea out on you so you can be the certified in the equestrian world. Dr. Lair has been my mentor since that time, which, you know, like it was like 1990, I guess. Wow. It's just this magnificent mixture of research-based, yet heartfelt, you know, like really understands people, mm-hmm. really um, you know, wanted to know what helped people to, to be able to do what they wanted to do when they wanted to do it. For example, in an Olympic athlete, they would go to HPI so that they would have their very best run in the in gymnastics or in the Olympics, that they wouldn't leave it on the table right. in some kind of qualifying event because they were nervous or getting or choking or something like that. So what were some of the principles of that mental toughness? The idea is that there's a state of emotion that is common to every high-level performer that is a skill and you can get into that state of emotion, that mindset, that zone Mm -hmm. by utilizing these specific tools. And because it's a state of emotion and because our mind and our body and our emotions are really one, it's like if you're happy, your eyes are up, you're smiling, you know, if you're like dancing around because you're so happy, it's going to be really hard physiologically for you to cry. And then the way that we think has a huge impact on our bodies and on our emotions. If you're going for this state of like intense focus, calmness, clarity, readiness, willingness to perform, if that's a feeling you can evoke that feeling on demand as a skill, no matter how you might really feel in your life, no matter if you had a flat tire, you had an argument with your spouse, no matter what, at that moment, Uh when it's time for you to go do what you want to do, you have the ability to call up that state of emotion by what you do with your body. They're called acting skills. And then what you do with your mind they're, you know, thinking tools. I was, I got trained in those wow. tools and got certified to teach them in the equestrian world. By the time all of that started rolling in that way of certification, that was probably in the mid, like 1990s. Mm-hmm. And then I just studied not only Dr. Lair's work, but I'm, that whole field intrigues me. And so, you know, I study other people as well. And love it and it changes it changes people's lives it not only changes their performance in the Mm -hmm. arena and their ability to be their best but it really changes their lives and it's really very exciting for me yeah it's helpful in competitions obviously but it it, it's got to be helpful in your everyday life absolutely because it really teaches you to be connected to your emotions and everything that we want in our lives is either like a high positive, like, you know, excited, focused, energized, you know, ready, let's go kind of feeling too more relaxed, calm. And really what we want to do is have this ability to monitor how we're feeling 
and use these tools to go go from like just the feeling of not just but a feeling of calmness right. to adding a you know more energy like if you're going to going to get up and speak in front of a group of people you want to be highly energized right. so it's an it's the ability to call that up on demand it's just so fascinating it really is and power and works and it really works so that's the cool thing so we have listeners of all different abilities and and disciplines and say you're going in well i'll, I'll put it like this i've got a um a trail trial event that's coming up in 10 days uh, i noticed on your website which has a ton of great information by the way it had uh-huh. it had these little kind of true or false little statements. And it said, uh, one of them was a consistent way to get calm and focused. And I would imagine you'd really want to do that like very shortly before I go into the arena. I want to make sure that I'm focused and I'm calm and I can transmit that to my horse and I can go out there and do what we need to do. What would be an exercise or something that I could do that would help me get to that calm and focused state. Can you give me an example? Yes. This is, uh, I'm, I'm just going to precede that with, okay. like if I was coaching you, John, like if you came to me and said, Barb, I, I want you to do private coaching with me. Okay. And I'm working up to competing at this event. I would talk about your relationship with your horse, you know, how you feel, you know, like on your very best day, how you feel with your horse, your horse's strength, your strengths, your weaknesses, and how you would prepare yourself and your horse leading up to that day. And it would be analogous to say that you're going to give a speech at a commencement where you don't just like walk up there without preparing for the speech. You know, you right. you really think about how you're going to prepare, what you're going to do, and how you're going to synchronize everything. That's the thumbnail sketch that I would say is important to consider how you get yourself ready and how you get your horse ready to your highest level for that Mm -hmm. day. You don't expect to be like the world champion trainer, but what you don't want to do is feel like my horse isn't ready and I haven't really thought about this and I'm rushing around and sticking it in here between all the stuff. So given that, and maybe even let's just say you don't even have time for that and you're just there and you're getting ready on that day. So then again, it goes back to preparation and and how you're going to warm up your horse, like planning that. You know, Mm -hmm. what the horse needs to be in the same state of mind, of emotion and focus as the rider. So what does the horse need and how long does it take and how are you going to plan that in in classes prior Mm -hmm. and this is all by the way very personal because it you know Susie's horse and her program really has nothing to do with your horse and that's one of the things that sidetracks people a lot is they get real distracted by everything that's going on around them so that warm-up time, during that warm-up, it's important to think about what you want to happen when you go into the ring, not what you don't want to happen. And in an undisciplined, by undisciplined, I mean untrained mind, mm-hmm. we all naturally tend to 
think about the things that we want to avoid and the things that we fear will go wrong, the places where we don't feel skilled or the weaknesses of our horses or the things that happened in the past. Do you use uh, creative visualization for these exercises too? Yes. So you can project what you're going to, what your performance was going to be looking like and put that in your head so that when you go in there. Yes. And the more that is done, the more those visualization exercises are done, the more familiar it seems. And in the visualization, it can be even, you know, a mistake and how you would correct it so that you feel prepared to do everything. Ah, right. I mean, that would be a huge recommend or a big recommendation. Mm-hmm. You know, sometimes when we don't do that and we're actually at the show, it can be a little bit, it, or not can be, it is challenging to get into that thought because, you know, we haven't practiced it. If, right. we, if we practice it every day, then we can just kind of slip into it like a glove. But let's just say someone has not practiced these skills. It is still better in the warm-up and maybe when you're brushing your horse just to go over what your plan is when you get into the arena. So you want to fill your mind with what you want to happen instead of what you want to avoid. Right. It reminds me of a lot when uh, I played golf as a younger man. And because I'm very, uh, I'm very interested in the, the power of the mental aspect and mental toughness as mm-hmm. well. And they would give the example of you'd be standing in, in front of a water hazard. And a lot of golfers, their mental thought pro- process was, I hope I don't hit it in the water which sounds very simplistic, but our brains almost don't hear the word, the negative. They don't, so they just hear, they just hear, I hope I hit it in the water. And guess what happens? That's what you, that's what you end up doing is instead of going, I hope I land on the ground, you know, on the, on the beautiful grass on the other side and Mm -hmm. focus on the green. Yeah. Right. Exactly. You got it. And making the jump, you know, in, in the, my trail trial, I've got a, I've got a jump, which is always a little bit anxious for me because I'm not the world's best jumper, but I have to focus on getting over the other side and, and maintaining my balance and my seat through that, through that exercise. Okay. So let's just use that. What would be good, and perhaps you already do this, let's just focus on the jump part. Okay. The most ideal thing would be is if you could remember a time when you left whatever obstacle you had just done and now you're focused on the jump, okay, before you get there, uh-huh. that you were in this frame of mind where you were looking you know, through or past the middle of the jump to the other side and you were feeling your force and your body was soft, and your eyes were up, and your shoulders were back, and your chin was up, and you felt really connected to your horse and to your seat, which you spoke of, Mm -hmm. and to the gait of your horse and to the strides, and you just had the ability to be in that moment with this calmness and your eyes so focused knowing that when you got to the jump, that that was going to happen almost on its own. 
because you had been so connected to the moments before. Got it. That whole feeling of breathing, and you asked me, you know, initially, like, if, how do you get into that calmness? Mm-hmm. That whole ability to really rehearse in your mind and see where you're going and feel what it's felt like. And if you have never felt that way or for any listeners that are thinking about whatever they, whatever their challenge is, if you haven't felt it yourself, you can always imagine because you can do anything in your mind right? that you are a writer that you so admire. And that if you could slip into their body and ride with them that same jump, you know, how would that feel? What that what would that be like to have that confidence and clarity and eyes up? What you say to yourself as you're like say as you're approaching the jump, you might those words instead of leaving them random, you would plan to say, Okay, John stay cool, and then you might even, like, in your mind, talk to your horse and say, okay, Joe, here we are, stay cool. Okay, John, breathe, eyes up, eyes up, eyes up, and you're, like, feeling it as you get to the jump, and then the jump just happens. Oh, wow. It's not about focusing on just the result of what you want. It's about the whole the whole it's process like the whole of segment, the whole segment, right. yes, that is involved, and that you're coaching yourself to trust yourself to you know to look up, to stay right. cool, to trust, to soften, maybe soften your elbows, relax your legs, whatever the mechanical coaching would be like. Yeah, your confidence would be just amazing in that situation if you if you knew you were in the comp the competition ring with with your coach in your ear, it you would definitely have an edge. Is that the, the type of clinics? I noticed that you've got some clinics coming up with Sandy Collier. Is that your kind of part of the of what goes on in those clinics? Are you doing that? Yes. Uh-huh. That's one of the, the things I do. Mm-hmm. I do. We, so we do a, an entire afternoon of a mental skills workshop where it's in the classroom so that people really understand the skills. And I've I've learned over time because these ideas are either new, brand new for some people, or they're being reviewed for other people, or having an undistract having undistracted attention to really understanding what is it that we're doing and how, you know, why are we doing it and how are we doing it is better than saying, okay, let's do a type of posture up, you know, eyes up, which is cool. And that's what we coach when people ride. But when they have that foundation really clearly, it's much more effective. And really in every clinic or every retreat, now I'm doing some retreats, those, just really fun to see people understand and you know and apply them and see the difference because see what happens as we learn these skills and you can just kind of feel it like in the example of you doing the jump and you talking to yourself 
that puts your body in the right muscle tension so that you can use your hand cues. Riders can use their hand cues. They can use their leg cues. They can use their feet cues. They can use their feet cues. But when we are in a state of emotion that is a little or a lot anxious, then our vision is narrow, our muscles are tight, and we can't ride as well. Yes, because, you know, you can imagine if you're tense, your adrenaline's up, and if your adrenaline's up, your heart's racing, and if your heart's racing, then your your muscles are tense, and you, you don't have that fluidity that you would normally have in practice. Exactly. So that is why this training allows people to be their best on demand. You know, it was developed so that, again, the Olympic athletes didn't leave their best performances somewhere else right i love talking about this stuff i think that just like horsemanship practicing positive mental attitude it's a lifelong chore you have to put some focus on it you have to put some attention on actively being in these the the mental states just like you have to focus on when you're riding your horse you're not just sitting there you're you're riding your horse and giving Mm -hmm. and, and making that connection if people want to find out more about what uh, you have to offer, where can we send them? On my website, barbershulte.com. Mm-hmm. Okay. And that's a B-A-R-B-R-A, like Streisand. Okay. Barbara, S-C-H-U-L-T-E, dot com. On the top toolbar, I, I write articles, free articles. Mm-hmm. There's a horsemanship section, there's a cutting section, and then there's a personal performance section. And then there's a sign-up box for my articles and my newsletter that allows people to get those in in their inbox. And then because of that, then they stay connected to different online courses I do. I love to do online courses because the way that I do them is through um, short messages or videos, uh, either daily or week segments that people can walk through over time. And that's where change happens. You know, people, you know, share ideas. And anyway, so I really love the online courses because I can do so much direct interaction with people. So notification about the different courses I have that open and close over time. You know, access to tons and tons of free information and then the different events and the places where I I will be. Very cool. Well, you've got a a wealth of knowledge that uh, I'm so happy that you're sharing with us on the show today. And I want to thank you for being on the Woe Podcast. I hope we run into each other again. I hope so too, John. It's been such a pleasure to reconnect and I'm grateful for your invitation and I'm very appreciative and I, I hope that the listeners got some good ideas and I just can't really say enough about what powerful information this is. I wish you all the best in your trail class. Well, thank you. I'm going to practice this and uh, I've been working on practicing different things. I've got I've got 10 days now and I'm going to uh, put the mental toughness to, to work and see how that works for me. That'll do it for this week. Thanks to Barbara Schulte for sharing her story and insights with us today. You can find out more about all the great things Barbara has to offer at barbaraschulte.com. Remember, Barbara is spelled B-A-R-B-R-A. 
We'll have all the links in the show notes at woepodcast.com. Stay in touch. Woe Podcast is on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. You can subscribe to Woe Podcast on iTunes, Stitcher, and Google Play. You'll never miss an episode. Consider checking out our Patreon page and supporting the Woe Podcast. We hope to add more good stuff and continue to bring you entertaining and informative shows. Patreon is p-a-t-r-e-o-n dot com, then forward slash John Hare, all one word. Or simply go to Woe Podcast and find the Patreon button. Need more? You can join our mailing list at woepodcast.com. We'll keep you up to date on everything happening at the Woe Podcast. And I'll send you some of my favorite horsemanship tips, things you can do to build a better relationship with your horse with just a few minutes practice. Thanks again for listening to the show. Please keep sharing our podcast about horses and horsemanship with your friends. Until next time, go have some fun with your horses. Bye-bye, everybody. Bye-bye.